What does grace mean? We use that word grace a lot. But what does it mean? What does grace look like in practice? We could be more specific and say, what does the grace of God look like? Does God's grace mean I can do what I like and get away with it? Does God's grace mean I will never suffer because of my sin? Those are important questions for us to think about. Because if you or I have the wrong idea about God's grace, we might look at our lives and think he's not being very gracious to us. This morning we have the chance to look together and see the grace of God in action. And that, I think, will help answer some of our questions about grace. We're going to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 315, and in the large print, 484. The background to what we're going to read in just a moment comes in chapter 11. The David we knew before chapter 11 was a very impressive man. We met him back in 1 Samuel. He was only a boy then. But as a boy, even as a boy, he had an amazing trust in God. He had a concern for God's glory and honor. And when he finally became king earlier on in 2 Samuel, David had a clear understanding of why God had made him king. We were told he knew he was king for the sake of God's people Israel. Not for his own sake. And we've seen in previous chapters how that worked out in David's reign. He was a king who did what was just and right for all his people. Even for his enemies. Even for the grandson of Saul, his greatest enemy. We saw how David brought Mephibosheth to his table like one of his own sons. And David even offered kindness to enemies outside of Israel. But last week, that impressive picture of David just fell to pieces. We thought we knew him. But in chapter 11, we hardly recognized him. Was it even the same person? We were told he lusted after Bathsheba. She was the wife of one of David's best soldiers, Uriah the Hittite. But David didn't hesitate. He sent messengers to get her. He slept with her. She became pregnant. And then, having dived right into sin, David started scrambling to try and cover up his sin. And that scramble ended with the death of Uriah and others from David's army. It was set up, of course, so it looked like they were just casualties of war. 
But the reality was different. Those men were casualties of David's sin. Chapter 11 ended with David apparently getting away with it. He married Bathsheba, who is now a widow. She had the child. And apparently no one knew what David had done. No one except God. Chapter 11 ended like this. After explaining how well David's cover-up had gone, we were told, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And now chapter 12 picks up about a year later. The child has been born. The sin is beginning to fade into the past. But it has not faded as far as God's concerned. So we pick up at chapter 12, verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 14. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this, all this, had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down the Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, 
The son born to you will die. This is God's word. And it shows us that God's grace confronts sin. God's grace tells the truth about sin. God's grace might not remove all the consequences of sin, but God's grace forgives sin. First, the grace of God confronts sin. You'll notice this confrontation doesn't happen by accident. Verse 1 says, the Lord sent Nathan. The Lord is going after David. He's not waiting for David to wise up all on his own. We met Nathan back in chapter 7. Back then, he delivered God's amazing promise to David. The promise was a dynasty. A dynasty that would eventually produce an eternal king. But this time, Nathan has a much less pleasant job. He has been sent to deliver God's rebuke to David. But notice he does it in quite an unusual way. Instead of wading straight in with condemnation, Nathan tells a story. And through the story, he leads David into condemning himself. Part of David's responsibility as king was to administer justice in Israel. And so David may have assumed this was an actual case. He may have thought Nathan was looking for his verdict on this. And the genius of this story is that it manages to describe David's sin without David realizing it. It's different enough not to make David suspicious, but it's similar enough to sum up what David has done. The rich man in the story had everything, a very large number of sheep and cattle. But we're told when a visitor came along, the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the visitor. Literally, the text says, he thought it would be a pity to take one of his own sheep or cattle. Instead, he took the poor man's only precious lamb. The rich man probably didn't even know the exact number of his own sheep. He had so many of them. The poor man had raised his only sheep just like a child. He fed it from his own hand. But the rich man snatched it away. He thought it was a pity to deprive himself of even one lamb. And so he had no pity on the poor man and his only lamb. That's the story. Look again at David's reaction to the story in verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David can see the injustice and it makes him angry. It's so unfair that the man who had everything 
thought he could take from the man who had almost nothing. And in his burning anger, David pronounces a greater punishment than the law required. The demand for fourfold restitution, that comes straight out of the book of Exodus. If you stole a sheep from someone, that was the penalty God required. Pay them back with four sheep. But in his anger, David adds the death sentence. Make him pay back fourfold and then kill him, Nathan. The king has stepped into Nathan's trap. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You've just pronounced judgment on yourself. You're the man who has everything, David. But you thought it was a pity to miss out on the one thing you didn't have. So you took Bathsheba. You had no pity for her. You had no pity for her husband. You had no pity for the man who died alongside Uriah so you could cover your sin. You had no pity for the families of those men. You had no pity for the nation of Israel. You were abusing and betraying by your sin. It's you, David. You're the one who actually deserves to die. The penalty you just gave was too much for stealing sheep. But it fits your crimes, David. Is this God's grace? Yes, it is. It is grace when God steps in like this. The alternative is to be left alone, to go unchallenged, to drift further and further from God into greater hypocrisy with a heart that's getting harder and harder. Yes, this is God's grace. And think of the courage it took for Nathan to deliver this grace. Remember, he is confronting a murderer. That's what David has become. Nathan knows he could turn out to be the next victim. It's God's grace that David has someone willing to rebuke him, even at the danger of David's rage and retaliation. And we have to take this on board ourselves. One way of describing grace is to call it undeserved favor. And when we sin, it is an undeserved favor when God comes after us in our sin. It's a favor when he rubs our nose in our guilt. No one likes to be declared guilty. But do we seriously want the alternative to that? Do we want God to leave us alone while we make our mess even worse? Whenever we come to see how valuable a rebuke can be, then we'll put ourselves in a position for God to confront us. 
We'll make sure his rebuke can reach us if and when it needs to. If we take a step into sin tomorrow, don't we want God's rebuke sooner rather than later? Wouldn't we rather be confronted on Tuesday rather than months or years later? The longer we go unrebuked, the deeper we're likely to be in sin. So how do we make ourselves easy for God to find? We have to make sure we're regularly exposed to God's word. And there are three ways that needs to happen. First, we have to be regularly reading the Bible ourselves. Second, we have to be regularly hearing someone teach and apply the Bible. And third, we need someone who knows us enough and loves us enough to bring the Bible to us personally. Not in a sermon, but face to face. When we're guilty, we need our faces rubbed in that guilt. And very often, God will do that gracious work through his written word. Reading it for ourselves is crucial. So is hearing others preach it. Because when it's just me and my Bible, well, I can easily skim over the bits that might challenge me. I need to hear others who'll do me the favor of not letting me skim over the challenging bits. And so, as well as hearing preaching, I need friends who'll be willing to come to me. We can switch off when we're reading by ourselves And we can even switch off during sermons. But it's harder to switch off when a friend is right in front of you. Do you think Nathan was shouting when he said, you are the man? The text doesn't say he was shouting. But I'm quite sure he was firm. And we need Christian friends who will be firm when they need to be. That is God's grace to us. When a child is doing something stupid or something destructive, they are privileged if they have a parent or a brother or sister who loves them enough to rebuke them. And if we are part of God's family through faith in Jesus then we're blessed. We have a father and we have brothers and sisters who will rebuke us when we need it. When we wander into the stupidity and the destructiveness of sin. So let's not try to hide from these rebukers. Let's be thankful for them. Let's put ourselves in a position to benefit from them. Let's go out of our way to get to know our Christian brothers and sisters. God might use them to stop us in our tracks someday. And I should also say, if you're not a Christian, 
And if you're looking into Christianity and you begin to feel uneasy about your sin, that's a good thing. Don't back away from that uneasy feeling. It's God's grace to you. You'll never turn from sin unless you come to realize you're a sinner. The grace of God confronts sin. And it also tells the truth about sin. There's a great temptation for us to minimize and excuse and explain away sin. The culture we live in does it all the time. And you and I can begin to do it. The church in general can begin to do it. In our culture, we hardly use the word sin anymore. It seems just too harsh nowadays. As if people might be to blame for some of the stuff they do. And we can find ourselves following the lead of our culture. We can end up talking so much about mistakes and foolish choices that we forget what sin really is. But it's God's grace when we hear the truth about sin. Nathan tells the truth here. He doesn't come to the palace and say, David, mate, you've made a few bad choices here. No, he says, you have despised God. That's what sin is. First, it despises what God has already given us. Nathan lists those things for David in verses 7 and 8. The Lord says, I anointed you king, and I gave to you, and I gave to you. But God says, you despise my kindness by demanding the one thing I hadn't given you. Someone else's wife. And second, God says, when you took Bathsheba, you despise my ability to meet your need in the present. In verse 8, he says, if you'd come to me with your frustration, I'd have given you even more than I'd already given you. I'd have shown you how I can meet your need and give you true satisfaction. But when you committed adultery, instead of looking to me, you despised me. And third, in verse 9, you despised the word of the Lord. In this context, that seems to be referring to the promise God made back in chapter 7. He promised David a future that would stretch beyond David's earthly life. A savior king who would be David's own savior. God says, when you sinned, you despise not only what I'd already given you, not only my willingness to meet your need in the present, you despise the future I had promised you. You acted like it wasn't enough. You had to defy me. You had to try and take the blessing I'd given to someone else. Isn't that the truth about sin? We can try sometimes to blame it on our circumstances. I was under pressure. I was lonely. 
Sometimes we try to blame it on silliness. I know, I know. I never seem to learn, do I? But the Bible says, when we sin, we are despising God. We are spitting in the face of his provision and his promises and his faithful character. And isn't it God's grace when he cuts through all those excuses that we have? Isn't it God's grace when he shows us the truth about sin? Isn't it grace when God blows away that soft, focus little picture we have of sin and shows us the plain reality of it? You and I will never get serious about sin until we see it as it really is. Damnable disdain for God. Maybe this next part is what we find the hardest. Because verses 10 and 12 tell us the grace of God might not remove all the consequences of sin. In verse 10, Nathan goes on delivering God's word to David. He says, Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. In a few moments we will learn that David finds forgiveness for his sin. But God does not take away these consequences of David's sin. As we read on in 2 Samuel in weeks to come, and if we were to read on into 1 and 2 Kings, we will see that all of this became reality in David's life and in his family's life. And here verse 14 tells us in the short term, the child born from David's sin is going to die. In a few weeks we'll come back and look at that. It's one of the many miserable consequences of David's sin. And all this might bother us. We might say, okay, I understand God might use consequences to bring David to repentance, but after he's repented, shouldn't God take those consequences away? We might think it should work that way, but it doesn't. Think for just a moment of your own life and everybody else's life as a tapestry. There are countless threads tying our lives together, just like in a tapestry. And when we turn from our sin, God promises to forgive. He promises to reconcile us to himself. 
He promises to forget our sin. He does not promise to take away all the consequences of our sin. God does not promise to go back and unpick all those knots we've put in the tapestry. The knots caused by our sin. He does not promise to smooth out the ugly blemishes caused by our sin. David's sin has destroyed other people's families. And we'll find out in chapters to come, his sin has also sowed bitter seeds in his own family. It's diminished David's moral authority in his family and in his whole kingdom. And God does not go back and unpick all of those messy threads. They will stay. And they will bring painful, miserable consequences for David and for his family and for all Israel. Many of us know about this in our own situations. Sin causes problems. It has effects. And God has not promised to take all of those effects away. Sin can produce sickness and debt and legal difficulties, broken relationships. If God were to pull out all of those ugly threads, plenty of good threads would get pulled out too. Jesus told a story once about a farmer who realized he had wheat and weeds growing together in the same field. And his servants wanted to pull out the weeds. But the farmer said, leave it. Or you'll pull the wheat up too. Wait till harvest time and then we'll fix it. When you and I come to God in repentance, amazingly the guilt of our sin is removed. We can experience the joy of that burden being lifted. God will take away the vertical consequences of our sin, the consequences between us and him. But there is no guarantee he'll take away the horizontal consequences of our sin, the mess it makes on this level. God has not promised the mess of our sin is going to be magically cleaned up. We may have to live with some of the mess and the pain for the rest of our lives. And surely as we hear this and understand this, the message for us is, let's allow this reality to warn us away from sin. You and I can start taking sin so lightly. As Christians, we can step into sin thinking, ah, God will forgive me. I'll sort it out with him later. But we saw last week, we are not the same people after we sin. It hardens our hearts. We may not even have the desire to sort things out with God later. 
And here we see, even when God does graciously come after us and confront us, repentance doesn't guarantee everything is going to go back to normal. I know pastors who have sinned and repented of their sin and been forgiven of their sin, but they're not pastors anymore. I know men and women who've committed adultery and they have repented, but they don't have their marriage anymore. I know abusers who have repented, but they don't have their family anymore. Users who have repented, but they don't have their health anymore. Gamblers who have repented, but they don't have their house anymore. If you are thinking about stepping into sin, do not assume God will come chasing after you the way he came after David. It is pure grace when he chases after us and calls us back. And even if he does call you back, please don't assume he will tidy up the mess caused by your sin. You may have to live with the mess for the rest of your life. David certainly did. Let's allow his life to warn us away from sin. Some things will not be undone in this life. Well, if we ended there, this would be a very bleak picture. But this isn't where it ends. Verse 13 gives us David's response to God's word through Nathan. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It's significant that David doesn't mention Uriah or Bathsheba or his own family. Even though God's just pointed out his sin against all of those people. David simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. So does he not realize all the other damage he's done? Of course he does. But David realized the person most offended by his sin is God himself. Whatever else was involved in David's sin, it was first and foremost contempt for the Lord. David has seen the truth about his sin. The greatest mess that needs to be sorted is the mess David has made between him and God. Next week, we'll take a closer look at David's repentance. Psalm 51 gives us a much fuller account of how he sought God's forgiveness. We'll spend next week on that. But just notice here, David makes no excuses at all. He accepts he is the man from Nathan's story. Except unlike the man in the story, David really does deserve to die. He has despised God. 
David owns up to his sin, and notice, forgiveness comes to him. Immediately. And freely. Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin, you are not going to die. Just like that. But how can that be fair? David is an adulterer and a murderer. He's a hypocrite who's been sitting on the throne judging others while hiding his own sin. And he's despised God all the way through. It's not fair that God forgives him just like that. No, it's not. Grace is not fair. Grace is not what we deserve. David didn't deserve it, and neither do you or I. We are God despisers. Every time we covet what we don't have, every time we act like God has given us a raw deal in life, every time we bend the rules to try and get ourselves ahead a little bit, every time we hate our brother or sister in our hearts, every time we lie to make ourselves look good or to make somebody else look bad, every time we disobey God, we're despising his provision and his faithfulness and his promises. We deserve to die. It's not fair that God would just forgive us but he will. If we come without excuses, confessing our sin. We've seen there are no guarantees God will clean up the horizontal mess that our sin makes. But when we own up to our sin, he will clean up the greatest mess made by our sin. The vertical mess. The mess we've made in our relationship with him. The most amazing part of God's grace is that after confronting our sin and telling the horrible truth about our sin, the grace of God forgives our sin. We don't have to earn that forgiveness. We just receive it. It's free to us. But it's not free to God. God's grace cost him his own son. When we light these Advent candles every week, we're not just remembering God the Son coming as a baby. We're remembering he came as a baby so that he could die as a man for our sin. So how could God forgive David's sin? Because Jesus was coming. How can God forgive us? Because Jesus has come. When you and I see the reality of our sin, when we really see it, it's crushing to us. 
But it is not the end of the story. The grace that shows us our sin will forgive us our sin too. We're going to respond to God's grace as we sing, What kind of love is this?